0: 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine runner, off we have
1: a liftoff! Hey space enthusiasts, many of you may already read Casey Handmer's blog. It's a blog that I personally love which features many articles on space topics, including really cool ones like explaining misconceptions about Starship or how to terraform Mars. Now, we couldn't possibly do justice to the wealth of topics he's written about in one podcast episode, but we are taking somewhat of a whirlwind tour through some of his best known posts on space. I think you'll really enjoy it. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by NanoAvionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator, Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. So welcome back to another episode of the Space Business Podcast. And as you longtime listeners know, despite us having the word business in the name of the podcast, every few episodes we bring somebody on who is not focused or at least not exclusively focused on the business side of space. So today I'm really excited about our guest. Even though he now does have a startup company too, Casey Handmer, writes something called, well, Casey Handmer's blog, which regularly features in-depth articles on space topics. So welcome, Casey. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Casey, I think probably a lot of our listeners are already reading your blog. Do you just want to give us sort of the the short description of what the blog is and why you decided to start one? Sure. I mean, I've been writing blogs uh, since high school um,
0: on a whole variety of topics, But one of my long and enduring issues is is space. And most of my blogs, at least in the past few years, have been on space-related topics. And I've always kind of struggled with how to approach the topic because I don't really know that much about it. And uh, the reality is that humanity as a whole doesn't know that much about it. It's still an area of active kind of exploration and discovery. Um, And so it's like really difficult to talk about this in a way that doesn't come across as like pretending you know something you don't know or something. But then I realized that actually Mm. the, the reason I was frustrated about this was because I just saw like discussions in media essentially that that I felt were insufficiently accurate and I thought well I can talk about that and so I ended up finding this mm-hmm. like terrific vein of of blog fodder uh, which was essentially uh rounding up 20 or 30 more or less common misconceptions um that, that kind of kept appearing as tropes in in TV or movies or interviews or podcasts or artic- articles or whatever and going through and just kind of explaining uh you know why it is that this is misunderstood and you know what are the key questions and you know how can we think about this and and so on and it was it was quite useful at the time I was quite often getting into you know, protracted discussions on twitter which is not really a very good forum for that but i could always be like well i've Hmm. written something about this here's a link let me know what you think and um and i the overall goal was just to kind of shift the overton window of discussion and the standards of discussion in this particular on this particular topics into something that's a little bit more productive a little more focused on
1: on actually like going and building something so so keeping all of that in mind what you just said who how would you characterize your your target audience
0: Um, that's a good question. Uh, people have often asked me, why don't I monetize the blog somehow, put some, uh, some ads in or something like that. The reality is I've always written for, you know, an interested audience, not necessarily a particularly knowledgeable or technically literate one, but certainly an aspirational one. Um, and, and I've always you know, and I've taken to heart when I've written stuff that's way too obscure and people that, you know, misunderstand stuff that I, I find out about that pretty quickly. But at the same time, I would say that primarily I'm writing for my own entertainment. And I think over time, you know, I've managed to avoid audience capture by by essentially just writing what I want to and how I like it. And sometimes I write blogs that, to get you know, straight on Hacker News and have hundreds of thousands of views, um, straight away. And, and quite often I write blogs on like really weird esoteric stuff that, you know, it takes me six months to mm-hmm. research and write and like five people read it. And even my mom lies that she's read it. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I just write whatever the hell I want. And, um,
1: and sometimes people like it. And, and so just expand on this a little bit. So what, is there any sort of process of, of picking the topics? I mean, especially if they can take a few months to write. I mean, I assume there's some sort of thought process of like, okay, now I'm going to write about, you know, you know, uh, getting yeah. power to the lunar base or something. Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: So actually, the vast majority of, them, uh, of the blogs, and, and in particular, the ones that have been done quite well, were pretty spontaneous. Um, so probably my, my two most famous blogs or most popular blogs were the, the back-to-back ones on Starlink and Starship, which I wrote just over three years ago. And mm-hmm. at the time, I was working at, at JPL, which is a, a NASA center in los angeles and and so like this is mm-hmm. something that i was discussing and thinking about and following closely in the news but you know this this aspect which is like you know starlink is a thing and uh, starship is a thing and people don't really understand it and even people at, at uh, jpl like in an institutional sense the organization didn't seem to understand what was going on and so i had all these ideas in my brain uh, and at the time i had uh, one one young child now i have two young children uh, but I had a like a free mm-hmm. evening where they somehow went to bed at a reasonable hour and I just sat down and on my old laptop and just like cranked out these blog posts uh, two, two nights back to back. I think I, I even published them the same day and then I like corrected the typographical errors the next day once they were already up, something like that. So the process is is actually normally just like composition in white heat, um, which I actually prefer. But but in terms of research and background research, sometimes you have to do a bit of calculation or a bit of simulation or something like that. So, mm-hmm. so actually for the Powering the Lunar Base blog, there's, there's two of those. The, the first one was kind of, inspired by this idea and at the time i was working on some some lunar mapping stuff so i had all the data handy mm-hmm. i was inspired by this idea that you know if you built a hmm, how, how to start this uh, mars's rotational inclination is only about five degrees sorry not mars moon, the moon's uh, rotational inclinations are about mm-hmm. five degrees which is to say that even even in winter the the, the pole of the moon is not that far away from the sun it's almost Mm -hmm. it's almost perfectly oriented with its with its uh orbital orbital axis so so i thought well you know the moon is kind of lumpy and bumpy but maybe it's possible that you could build a power tower um at the south pole or the north pole on on the top of a tall mountain and it would stick up far enough that it was always in the sun and then you could avoid this Mm -hmm. really nasty problem which is that the moon has uh, 14 day long you know uh 300 something yeah. odd hour long nights day night and even yeah. in the south pole it's like it's still pretty damn long and it's really hard to store energy for that that yeah. period of time and, and ve- very big temperature
1: differences yeah the temperature
0: differences are, are also cons- you know considerable but you know if you have enough energy then you can solve that problem with with heat pumps and, and air conditioning mm-hmm. uh so i thought you could you could put up a, a power tower anyway so I, I basically ran the math on that it turns out it's not a great idea you need a tower it's about three kilometers tall because in the south pole there's this uh big massif or, or mountain called Malapert, uh, which is uh, mm-hmm. not far from the pole but it kind of shades shades at parts of the pole in winter and vice versa so uh, it, it's kind of the worst possible situation there but uh but yeah you know, i kind of looked at some other ways of powering things on on the, on the moon like nuclear power or or you know other forms of of sunlight independent power um and at the same time i think i was revising an earlier blog on space-based solar power which constantly comes comes up and um and i realized that that actually like by far the easiest way of getting power on the moon is to beam it from the earth in the form of microwaves so like you take space-based solar power but instead of beaming the the energy from space down to the earth you beam it in the other direction um which i thought was was cheeky enough that it was worth a blog post of its own uh, and it was actually mm-hmm. a really mm-hmm. fun one to write as well
1: did you get a lot of comments on that since it was kind of cheeky
0: to the extent that I wrote it uh seeking seeking clicks and likes and attention um i don't know if it succeeded i mean I, i've met a handful of people who you know are knowledgeable in adjacent spaces and i i, I, I should say i've have not been overwhelmed with agreement by other people but that's okay you know part of the reason i write these things is to is to help us ferret out the the, the ways and places mm-hmm. in which we we which we disagree but in terms of the math i'm, I'm mm-hmm. confident that i got that correct so you know anyone else can run the math it's not that it's not that complicated uh to, to figure out what it looks like and the the thing that doesn't appeal to people about it is if you're using microwaves to power the, the lunar base most of those microwaves are just like slamming into the lunar surface or going out into space and, and not doing anything because you're only you're only capturing mm-hmm. a little bit here and there and that seems really wasteful you're like oh well energy is so, so precious on the moon why why should we waste it but the reality is it's, it's not wasteful because because you're shooting that energy up from the earth where it's like a million or 100 million times cheaper to make it and so you can't afford to throw away Nine, 999,999 999 parts in a million, because uh, and still break even on cost. And, and the reality is that you know humanity emits energy essentially into space all the time, anyway, just not in forms that are necessarily recoverable on the moon
1: and the reason there's so much wastage is um is because it, the the microwave spread out or
0: yeah yeah so i mean in principle it would be possible to make a, a really focused beam of microwaves on the moon that that uh, that you could you could you could harness but it would cost more and at the end of the day the only thing that really matters is like what is the cost of power delivery so you have to be mm-hmm. really really careful about how you do your calculation and not optimize too much for various uh, ancillary parameters that just don't, don't matter that much in the final analysis so as an example you could create a focused microwave beam at let's say at the microwave Wave receiver on a lunar base somewhere in the south pole of, of, of the moon uh, but in order to do that you would need a significantly more more advanced power transmission uh, infrastructure so instead of having I think in my blog mm-hmm. i had like a discrete set of antennas you know a couple of miles wide or something like that you know dotted around the surface of the earth so that there would always be one facing or you know a handful of them facing the moon uh, and then they can they can phase lock either with with the help of a carrier beam from from the moon or, or with uh, what's called open loop tracking basically you do fancy calculations using gps and uh, just to make sure they're not canceling each other out too badly but in order to to do like a focused beam, let's say 100 meters wide, or something, you would need you need like an antenna that's a thousand a thousand kilometers wide, or something, which is like you know the size of a continent. So in practice, that would be yep. multiple smaller antennas all over the place, but they'd all have to be phase locked. And then you know because the moon vibrates and mutates and carries on in the sky, you, you need very sophisticated calculations and/or phase tracking to make sure that that your beam you know didn't, didn't kind of miss and at the end of the day like the overall power density that you achieve on the surface of the moon is no better right at the end of the day you don't want to do much more than a couple of hundred watts per square meter and and the total amount of infrastructure you have to build on the surface of the earth and its complexity is is orders of magnitude higher so you're like why are we bothering to do this we could just use the same infrastructure and spray a whole bunch of power you know all over the whole surface of, of you know of that part of the moon and then mm-hmm. then then as long as people are, are working within sight of the earth which is you know roughly half of the moon all the time and and, and a little section of the moon some of the time then you don't really even Need, need batteries or or additional motor motor power so you, know, you can have a rover or, or a spacesuit just kind of charge itself as, as you walk around uh just yeah. as long as you within inside of the earth which i think is is sweet like that that'd be amazing like imagine that imagine not having to dick around with like you know batteries and stuff on on the um on a rover
1: yeah 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 and just quickly and so in, in in your idea the power would actually literally come from earth it's not like uh, one of the proposed uh like geostationary like um Space-based solar power stations. It would come from Earth.
0: No, there's absolutely no reason to, to to bother with space-based solar power to power the Moon. I mean, that that just makes the whole issue even worse. You'd be better off just putting solar panels on the Moon and, and somehow dealing with with the yeah. with the nighttime. Probably the second best way of dealing with that is is to have really really large thermal storage tanks. So you know, for for a smallish base, you could have you know exceptionally large underground lake or something that that you um that you freeze and and then thaw you know over the course of the cycle to to extract and and then dump heat. But but even then, I'd uh, so the, the the advantage of that is that is that the working fluid, the, the water, you could potentially locate or obtain on, on the moon. So you wouldn't mm-hmm. have to send it up from Earth. Whereas if you're sending up batteries, you know, that's obviously quite expensive in terms of, I mean, like you say, well, Starship makes things cheaper to send. But if you look at your, your overall power system, you, you ideally, like, you know, the solar panels would be more than like 0.1% of the total mass. And mm-hmm. so, you know, or the same goes for, for a nuclear power plant. So it's just some random ideas. Uh, you know, obviously there's, there's inconveniences to being powered from from the Earth. You know, what if what if they decide to turn off all your power plants one day? Um, That would be inconvenient. But at the end of the day, like we have Ford operating bases all over the world that are in many ways no less vulnerable to, to supply chain interruptions, you know, in Antarctica or whatever. So uh, even though they, they generate their own power locally with, with diesel or whatever.
1: Yeah, in some way it would sort of, uh, let, let's say, uh, politically tidally lock the moon to the Earth too. Like, you you know, it would be very hard for an independent colony like in a moon and the harsh mistress is a harsh mistress to emerge. <laughs>
0: if you have to. Yeah, well, I have a blog about that. That's a fun book. God, yes, Heinlein is so, so, so
1: misunderstood. I mean,
0: like, I, I don't necessarily see eye-to-eye to eye, eye to eye with him on, on his politics, uh, nor with uh, Kim Sonny Robinson, for that matter, which is fine. I mean, we're allowed to have different opinions. It seems to me that, like, the number of people who are excessively enthusiastic about Heinlein uh, seem to miss the point an awful lot. But anyway, it's it's a fun book. Uh, it's actually a really, really fun book about AI alignment, actually. I, I, like, fundamentally, <laughs> that's that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, but yeah, there, there is this idea that you could have an independent moon colony fighting for its independence or something. You know, And of course, all these
1: stories are just Cribbed off the uh, the American Revolution mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You were mentioning Starship a minute ago. So coming back to Starship, so you said you wrote yeah. this, um, this the Starship blog post a couple of years ago and it it was misunderstood. So it's been a couple of years, you know, there have been some, you know, um, low, um, high altitude test flights. There has been a lot of, um, you know, blogging and reporting about uh, Starship. Do you feel it's any better understood now or that it's still misunderstood?
0: Yeah, so I wrote a follow-up a year ago. So two years after the original blog called Starship is still not understood. Okay. And, and then and then uh, not long after that, I wrote one called Science Upside for Starship, which, which more or less lays out like, you know, how we could rethink, for example, like um, the various uh, space exploration programs. We've got like planetary science, we've got uh, astrophysics, uh, science and so on in the context of using Starship for that. I would say that like Starship development uh is one of these things where like on a year-to-year basis it seems slower than you'd expect, but over the course of a decade a lot more occurs than you would have expected. So like basically humans are bad at mm-hmm. exponentials. But I would say that with the with the notable exception of the human landing system contract, which is uh NASA's contract to develop the lunar lander for humans under the Artemis program, which was given to Starship, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, as I say, like at the institutional level, people understanding and digesting what the implications of Starship would be. Certainly Individual engineers and program managers and stuff get it, and some of them are able blog, but many of them understood it well before I ever talked about it with them. But but you know what I care about is like if you if you see NASA, for example, as some sort of meta organism that is, um, it's also in some way in some ways an AI alignment problem because all its different components, all the different bureaucrats and so on who work at NASA are essentially following local rules uh, that are not set by them mm-hmm. to execute their jobs. Their expectations and their roles are fairly well defined. That organization as a whole. Uh, like all bureaucratic organisations, is not particularly good at assimilating new information. As a result, you know we have this we have this kind of issue where where missions are still being developed according to uh, a set of assumptions that that are no longer valid uh, and actually have not been valid since since Falcon 9 started flying, uh, but will be mm-hmm. sure as hell mm-hmm. extremely unvalid as soon as Starship is flying, which is which is sad, right? Because at the end of the day what this comes down to is capital misallocation yep. capital being you know the, the essentially money and 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 the time of and expertise of people involved mm-hmm. uh spending an awful lot of time and effort uh solving problems that no longer exist uh while failing to take advantage of of new opportunities to solve previously unsolvable problems. Yeah. And, and we kind of run up against the fundamental frustration, which is that human life is finite and we would like to see more exploration occur before we die of old age. For some of these larger projects, you know, there is a really good chance that I will not live to see the successor to JWST. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, let's get on with it. The the thing that really galls me about this and that I've only really understood recently is that for so much of what we're dealing with, uh, you know, as a as a society, but also in space exploration, it's not like the difficulties that we face are artificial. Obviously, like Exploring space is technically difficult, but we've made it way more mm-hmm. difficult than it has to be. You know, for example, what fraction of people's income in the United States is spent on housing? Housing is a solved problem. We've known how to build houses for ten thousand years. Like that's not controversial. Mm-hmm. But but yet for some reason we've decided as a culture that we should make housing deflationary and and really scarce and really expensive which means mm-hmm. that you know some huge fraction of our gdp gets shovelled into essentially speculative asset that doesn't actually produce any wealth this is just or inspiringly stupid uh, and the same the same sort of things occur in, in space exploration where you know we've essentially erected a whole series of artificial barriers and roadblocks that make it a lot more difficult than it has to be and space is hard enough as it is so i, I you know it just this is kind of the underlying frustration coming up, but I think I think the way that we deal with that is is we write blogs with kind of a constructive uh, tone of tone of thinking that. Um that helps to you know explain to people how they can how they can think about these problems in a more expansive or open ended way
1: yeah and I mean oh God we could open a rabbit hole here but I mean that's probably not only space exploration and and housing I mean you know I'd argue probably in many countries education is also not um, optimized yeah that's probably no, so, I mean probably society probably society fair. at large um so, sometimes you'd think that it would be good to have sort of the Heinlein type um, AI who could help out a little bit but I mean, we'll see how whether that works in the future or not AI will save us you know possibly but I don't I don't think So so we'll see. Um, let's talk a little bit. So one thing you've been writing a lot about in in, in various blogs is basically taking humanity off Earth, right? Whether it's to Mm. the moon or Mars and and and, you know what we need to do to make that happen, you know, whether it's um energy generation, which we just talked about in the context of the moon. What are things? So I just want to kind of basically use that as a sort of an overarching topic if topic, if you don't mind. And let's talk about basically getting humanity um, to Mars and not in a flags and footprints. A manner, as they say, but basically establishing a permanent presence there, as people like Elon have in mind. If we want to do that, obviously, that requires a whole sort of stack of technologies. I think you've you've touched probably on almost all of them in one or the other blog posts. So we need a transport capability, you know, we'll talk about Starship, you need energy generation, which you just talked about, you need habitats, you need, um, you know, greenhouses to grow food, you need other forms of life support, um, you may need robotics to basically make things happen in a, in a very hostile environment, you may need surface transport. This is probably a whole bunch of things I'm not even thinking about. Sort of, Which ones of these elements do you think are most important and also which ones may be uh, yet again the most misunderstood? I mean, the hardest part of the overall system uh, by far is uh, transporting
0: humans from Mars back to Earth. This is actually the title of of the first book that I read about space stuff when I was just getting started back in about 2015 um, or thereabouts, which is like how to get to Earth from Mars, solving the hard part first. Relatively speaking, uh, I think Getting from Earth to Mars is also quite difficult, not, but nowhere near as difficult as getting mm-hmm. from Mars back to Earth. And then once on Mars, uh, day-to-day survival is a, primarily a problem of logistics. Um, and if logistic capacity, uh, particularly with, say, one-way cargo transport, is you know, sufficient, um, then actually living on the surface of Mars I don't see as being dramatically more difficult than, say, living in Antarctica or, or some other, mm-hmm. you know, quite hostile, like living in a nuclear submarine or something like uh essentially a, a hostile, hostile environment, um, with, with, you know, a highly technological, uh, machine that, that protects the humans inside, but getting, getting from Mars back to earth is, is, um, is really financially difficult. So that's, you know, when it comes down to it, I think Starship is the, is the key piece of the puzzle, uh, because that's, yeah. You know, uh, I don't know. Like you can you can read through the Wikipedia article on on like various proposed uh, architectures for exploring Mars, and essentially none of them actually solve the getting humans back problem, you know, quote unquote, well enough. Some some of them, you know, make a solid stab at it, but at the end of the day, in my view, they they place a lot of what I call marginal requirements on the design that are. Um, Essentially, impose exponential cost penalties uh, for linear cost savings, and as a result, like they just can't, they can't work. Whereas, where Starship understands that, like the Starship architecture understands that this is the hard part, we need to design a rocket that can do this one part, and then build the rest of the architecture around that, uh, and and so you don't end up with like some arbitrary constraint, like oh well, everything has to be able to fit in the shuttle payload bay, or everything has to use you mm-hmm. know, certain kinds of fuel, or you know, we, we have to necessarily restrict the crew size because we have no way of getting a crew of more than one or two people off Mars um, and then into orbit and then back to Earth or something. Um, and I think it's just really important to understand that the Starship is built to be able to transport many tens of tons of stuff from Mars directly back to Earth in a single shot, single stage, which is actually not even technically all that difficult because the Delta V required mm-hmm. is, is relatively low. Mm-hmm. It's certainly, certainly much, much easier than, say, from Earth directly to Mars without without refueling in low Earth orbit, but yeah, it, it, when when you say okay, we need to solve this problem, then then naturally you end up with a very very large rocket with a very high efficient engine and um and and really a strong commitment to to good mass fraction and stuff like that. So you end up with with Starship, which is just a giant giant rocket. I'd say that the next hardest part for the whole system um, is actually what's called entry, descent, and landing on Mars. Mars' atmosphere mm-hmm. is, is thick enough to help a little bit, which means you know one doesn't have to carry all the fuel out to Mars necessary to slow down. Uh, you can use the atmosphere to slow, slow you down most of the way, but, um, mm-hmm. but it's also really thin by earth standards so um so for for a large enough spaceship to fly home for example like the starship um there's there's a real risk that it'd be heavy enough on entry that it, that it wouldn't slow down in the atmosphere before it hit the ground uh, and so mm. you know that that's obviously a problem so so you need to have uh some sort of uh, entry descent and landing system that that uh, is capable of generating quite a bit more lift than a blunt body system like the the mm-hmm. capsules that the rovers landed in and uh, and you need obviously some sort of control system and then and then as starship does the ability to backflip and uh and then use its engines to, to land in a pinpoint, uh, pinpoint precision location. All of which mm-hmm. is, you know, we now know not technically impossible, um, but but none of which had really been serious seriously considered uh in in either constellation or Mars Direct or any of the other, you know, uh, more or less comprehensive paper studies that would have been done previously.
1: Mm-hmm. So so I have to ask you, because you started out saying sort of the hardest part is getting is getting back to Earth from Mars. Yeah. So, so like, okay, so this, this this may sound extreme, but if we really wanna settle another place besides earth and we want committed settlers like why do we actually care about that i mean I could say sort of in in the in the olden days you know when people emigrated from say europe to well, what today is the us or Argentina or Australia they basically went on a one-way ticket right why should it be any different for for the solar system yeah i, I used
0: to subscribe to to that general feeling which is like well our ancestors had it rough and they made it I think I think that you know our culture has obviously changed in the intervening times, and mostly for the good. But I would say that uh, while it is likely in in the case that you are building a city that most people would immigrate permanently, uh, particularly because there'd be a mm-hmm. like a really st- steep cost penalty to have to come back, mm-hmm. you should still have that obviously have that technical capability to send stuff back, right? So like and particularly in the exploration phase, you know I think I think the first time people go, you would want to be able to return. And and if, even if you end up with a situation that say like only one percent of the people there ever come back to Earth, uh, that's still still a necessary thing. Uh, I think it's important to remember that that our ancestors who you know shrugged off the death of most of their children, et cetera, et cetera, mm. probably had like by our modern standards really shit lives, and um, and we shouldn't be like, well, all we have to do is, you know, desire to live in a world where some trivial infection could kill you, and most of your children will not see adulthood, and you have no political rights as like the sort of expansive future we want to build for humanity. Mm-hmm. But I, I I do certainly think so, like. I, my my views on this have evolved. Uh, in that I used to think that it would, you know, especially before before SpaceX moved to, to stainless steel, um, that it would be a good idea to fly all the rockets back to Earth um, to reuse them. Mm-hmm. But but my understanding now is that is that the marginal cost of Starships are low enough that you could probably afford to send them one way, and you may may want to like salvage pieces of them and send those pieces back to Earth mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. later potentially. But if you think about, like, oh, I need another starship, is it easier to take a a slightly worn-out starship that's on the surface of Mars, or is it easier to take your factory that's already producing 1,000 starships a year and make one additional starship? And I think the answer Mm -hmm. to that is that it's easier just to make more starships. And so um, the nice thing about about doing that is that um, it means that the overall fraction of the base's economic capacity um, which is devoted to synthetic fuel production can be greatly reduced if you're sending most like all the cargo starships essentially one way, you don't have to mm-hmm. worry about margins for return, you don't have to worry about anything like that. So, yeah, that's that's a that's a nice one. It's, and I assume, um, even
1: if um, even if the starships go one way only, right? I mean, it's not like they're completely lost. I assume we could use the um, the stainless steel on masse for something.
0: Well, yeah, so it's, a, it's an interesting point. Um, I think it would be quite possible to for example uh employ employ the volume inside i have a, a blog about this in the context of lunar bases but but essentially it's like one or two thousand cubic meters of pressurizable volume inside the starship so you could you could essentially repurpose them as as uh as pressurized skyscrapers maybe either mm. for, mm-hmm. for storage of of certain gases or or, or even for people live in them um i strongly suspect that it'll be there'll be much nicer places to live on mars maybe not on the moon but on mars than than inside a starship uh, after it has arrived but yeah i mean Certainly, mm-hmm. a, as a source of raw materials, uh, not 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 bad. A you know, hundred tons of stainless steel lying around would certainly find its uses. No, but the, the key thing is, like, in order to send a starship back to Earth, you need to make about twelve hundred tons of propellant, and that's that's a lot. I mean, like, mm-hmm. like uh, I actually, I, I founded a company, I'm, I'm, I'm literally sitting in, in the office right now, um, uh, and what we are doing is, is synthetic hydrocarbon, or synthetic methane production, so it's literally the same chemical process mm. uh, that you would need to make fuel mm-hmm. on Mars, um, with with a few tweaks on here to make it a bit easier for us on Earth, but but just like, I can't even remember, like, I think we make a couple of, couple of hundred kilograms per unit per day or something, so to make 1,200 tons, you know, over the course of a year, you'd need like I don't know, 100, 100 megawatts or so of power, which is just a staggering amount of power to to think about on in the context of a base of like you know 100 people or a thousand people. So you know, essentially, in order to do that at scale, you would need to send many many Starships worth of uh, materials and equipment uh, and nuclear reactors and stuff in order to get that done. And and if you are able to mm-hmm. delete that requirement from the critical path, then obviously all that all that capacity, logistic capacity, and also um, institutional or like organizational capacity on the surface uh, can can be devoted towards other things that are more important so mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i think i think overall like sending most of the starships one way is probably the way to
1: go and so considering that, that you know considerable capacity that starships have so we're refueling sort of 100 metric tons uh plus how should we mm-hmm. use that capacity you think i mean besides bringing humans right um what what should we bring sort of keeping in mind what is available that we know of on Mars.
0: yeah i have a i have a blog post on this as well which is called the, the make by question um, or understanding the make by question mm-hmm. on Mars. Uh, essentially, it's like understanding like what do you what do you make and what do you bring with you. It's actually there's some very interesting and subtle stuff that goes on here um, because um, yeah, obviously initially you have to bring everything, in, and and you know, as a rough rule of thumb, mm-hmm. like 10, 10 tons of gear for every one ton of human or something like that, uh, just to keep them alive. And then over mm-hmm. time, you know the the components of you know, like, if you think, if you break down, like, the per capita allocation of of stuff, uh, you know, most of it will be what we call dumb mass, which is, like, heavy stuff that's not too complicated. And some of it is smart mass, which is, like, not so heavy stuff that's really complicated and hard to make. Uh, and so, over time, mm-hmm. it gives you a pretty straightforward you know, list of, of things that you want to produce locally. And, and you know, by far, the, the major contributions are, like, gases uh i mean let's, let's start at the beginning water obviously uh we need more mm-hmm. water than anything else and we'd better damn well find a source of it on mars quickly or we'd be in trouble mm-hmm. you know obviously rocks undifferentiated rocks and, and dirt and stuff uh gases um uh, maybe maybe uh, me- methane and, and primitive plastics and and um and stuff like that and then you know in the second tier you start to get it like making metals and things and then in the third tier you can do like highly manufactured highly manufactured goods the the thing is like over time obviously that the base is growing uh it's it's local, industrial capacity and ability to manufacture things is improving which would see like a trend towards gradually onshoring production rather than importing stuff from Earth mm-hmm. but at the same time we should also expect to see that like the cost of shipping stuff via starship would decrease as well which would in turn mm-hmm. incentivize moving stuff from uh, you know, importing more stuff from Earth so it, it, it'll be interesting to see like which of these two trends uh, grows more quickly um, and and which of them um, you know eventually reaches some threshold or or, uh, or like upper limit. Which then allows the other one to to prevail um it's not entirely clear uh, from first principles you know which which one will prevail outside of you know knocking down the first 90 of of mass but i think the key thing is like you know each each human needs a couple of hundred kilograms of stuff just to survive the trip from earth um and so if mm-hmm. they need a couple of hundred kilograms of additional stuff in order to survive on mars for the rest of their life that's not a huge marginal increase in the total cargo required to ship to mars um and so if you wanted to ship more people maybe the easiest thing to do is to make more starships rather than to try and find ways of, I don't know, you know, mass-producing... Uh, flash memory or something on the surface of Mars, like mm. like like the the relative difficulty of doing that versus the benefit of doing that is is really low. So yeah, I mean like you could plausibly import a lifetime supply of of like computer chips uh, when when you come to Mars, mm-hmm. like tucked tucked in amongst your underwear. Um, and so uh, there might there might be like ideological reasons for knowing how to make at least some uh computer chips, like uh, yeah, basic um, <laughs> yeah, ma- ma- Mars sovereignty locally. Yeah, like um, Mars sovereignty or like Otagi. Uh, it's probably a good idea to at least have yep. some capacity there. But at the same time, like uh, I do not seriously think that that like you know TSMC uh Arcadia Planitia will compete with TSMC Taiwan uh anytime soon. Um, you know, you know, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, let, let's, let's be sensible here. Um so uh but yeah, but yeah, that's uh, but yeah, I think you can you can kind of break down per capita consumption. I mean, if I, I can pull up that chart probably. Um can have a quick look at some exact numbers. People often underestimate just how much water people consume. Um and it's, um, uh, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing that, that people consume a lot of water, to be clear. I think that water is cheap and it should sure. be cheap and we should have a lot of it and be able to use it. All right, let's have a look. All right, so I'm looking at a chart that uh, that you can find in the Make Buy question uh, blog. And mm-hmm. um, essentially here I estimate the, um, the annual consumption in kilograms per capita and the annual cost in dollars per capita of a whole bunch of different things, um, both in terms of earth baseline cost, uh, the cost it would cost to... Uh, the amount it would cost to import them from earth and then the amount it would cost to produce them on mars and that gives you a way to compare these compare these uh these three costs and decide which is best uh but for for example on earth uh annual consumption of of water on earth is about a thousand tons Mm -hmm. which sounds like a lot but like that's obviously not just for flushing toilets that's 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 also for agriculture that supports you um but Mm -hmm. the the cost uh the amount of money that we spend on water is at least a couple hundred bucks uh, per capita per year um so like Mm -hmm. it's it's less than a dollar per less than a dollar per ton which is Mm -hmm. which is staggering because like right now the cost of launching stuff to space is around two thousand dollars a kilogram so two million dollars a ton uh, and obviously mm-hmm. getting stuff on on Mars would be at least a 10x if not 100x on top of that so 220 200 million dollars a ton depending on you know I think I think starship says that it might be able to hit 100 bucks a ton of stuff to mars or something i'll say 100 bucks a ton well it's still more than 100 times more expensive than water on earth so like that's a lot of money Right. Mm-hmm. right we've got uh, methane rubble oxygen concrete nitrogen steel basic carbs mm-hmm. uh, and in the intermediate phase which is the stuff where you're like not quite sure if if import will will win against local manufacturer uh we've got things like um fasteners plastics fertilizers nitrogen uh textiles and clothing copper aluminium uh, and some basic machinery, and then in the in the re- realm of stuff where you know, per capita consumption is on the order of one gram per year, and the cost mm-hmm. is obviously like the annual the amount that people spend on it is also proportionally lower. Um, is obviously like proportionally lower, but it's still like the the dollars per gram or something is extremely high. We've got essentially uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, highly processed food uh, like luxury food mm-hmm. food food items, um, computer computer components, and precious metals and uh, and certain yeah certain drugs. So
1: yeah. I think it's mm-hmm. kind of neat. You can you can throw this stuff yeah. up on a on a graph. We, and we'll link yeah. we'll link to your blog obviously in the episode notes. People, I highly encourage people to read <laughs> up on that, um, with well, that, and 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 your other uh, blog posts. But so yeah. the good news so far is that you know a lot of the things we, we we talked about, whether it's on transportation or you know various uh, things we need for life support for Mars, I, I think technologically we have it more or less solved. Um, is there anything that you see that is still putting as a potential constraint on plans like you know establishing a self sustaining city on Mars? within, you know, a few decades time frame? Uh
0: Well, the short answer is yes. Um, I should say that, like, the technology that we would need to keep humans alive on Mars indefinitely is, like, it's understood. There are engineers who can build it, et cetera. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as solve. I would say that with, you know, a, a reasonably estimable investment of a finite sum of time and money, we should be able to get to, like, version one of a system that can do that. Mm-hmm. But version one is not going to be very good. You know, that's going to be, you know, like the 1200s, ocean going void, uh, ships or something like that, or like you know, very sure. early muskets or something. It's like, it's not exactly like the, the super advanced version that, that actually makes sense and will, will work well, but you know, it's better than nothing. But yes, in terms of, in terms of that, no, there's still, there's still a lot of missing pieces and, and it's all downstream of transport, uh, which is why I think it makes sense for SpaceX to focus on getting the rocket right for now. Um, but I do have a blog post on this, which I'll pull up cause I cannot rely on memory, which is, um, the opportunities for mm-hmm. space companies, um, which I actually ended up following when I founded this company here. But essentially um large scale solar arrays, uh air miners, water miners, rock miners, fuel plant, uh, which is what we're doing here, life support, machinery, um, heavy machinery, telerobotics, uh, pressure structures such as uh, pressure tents and then surface activity suits. And all these things are, in my view, unsolved or like incompletely solved, in the sense that we can speculate and we can draw pictures and we can make renderings and we know vaguely what they'll look like. But if you said, okay, right now I want to go out and spend five million dollars and buy myself a spacesuit that will allow humans to work on the surface of Mars mm-hmm. for extended periods of time, every day, no, no questions asked, you could not do it. And and we don't want to spend five million dollars on a suit. We'd rather spend you know five thousand dollars on a suit, right? Sure. But, um, but they just don't exist. And and uh, and so it's my hope that people read this blog and and go and found companies in these spaces that are able to make money uh, within established markets, but also
1: able to deliver value. Um, you know, across the board. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about another aspect of sort of um, establishing humanity on on Earth that you've also written about, which is the the terraforming aspect. And that's, of course, we could Mm. probably spend like a a sort of three-hour episode just on that, of course. But sort of at least, you know, at least scratching the surface a little bit sort of, you know, how do you think about terraforming Mars? Do Do you think it is feasible? Are people, again, are there Misconceptions about it, because obviously you know there's, this is being talked about. Well, a reasonable amount, and um, you know, and, and SpaceX has the um, famously has the nuke Mars T-shirts, uh, which I have one in my closet.
0: Yeah, um, I think nuclear power is certainly uh, something that's necessary on on Mars um, uh, just to get things done long term. I don't think it's necessarily in the critical path, but uh, terraforming is a fun one. It's not necessary in the short term. The reality is that humans can live on Mars, I think, uh, quite quite comfortably and well without terraforming the planet. But I think it'll be irresistible longer term to do it. I think that uh, a terraform Mars would be the most beautiful thing that humans have ever made. Um, and I think that humans are unable to resist that kind of beauty. So it'd be very exciting to do it. There are I think five or six different ways of approaching the problem and they all basically are terrible to their in their own ways. But uh, you know, I'd say that the two most promising ways are, are build a lot of greenhouse gas factories on the surface of Mars, which is obviously uh, a lot easier to do if you already have like lots of factories on the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. You know, like lots, lots of cities and things. And then and then the second best way is uh, – sorry, the, the best overall way, I think, is is via solar sails. So, like, eff- effectively increase the size of the sun on the surface of Mars by, by having a, a whole bunch of mirrors sitting out in space reflecting light back towards the planet. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote a blog on this fairly recently, actually, where I ran the numbers on it. And, and the neat thing about it is that you could do this with with currently available technology, like off-the-shelf uh, say ninety ninety five percent of it would be off the shelf. Um, it's primarily like a, a systems integration manufacturing problem. Uh, you could launch it with currently existing rockets, and mm-hmm. you could you could begin the process of heating Mars up today. Uh, you do not have to get on the surface. You do not need humans involved. Um, you don't need any new technology. You just need the the, the will to to build you know a hundred million or a billion. Uh, solar sails, which are you know, roughly the same cost and form factor as a mobile phone and and to launch them and let them go and hang out around Mars and, and do their job, which I think is actually super compelling, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of, so again, like it comes down to dollars, right? So like at the end of the day, Mars needs more heat. Heat is measured in Watts. Mm-hmm. What is the, the, the greatest number of Watts you can get on the surface of Mars per dollar? And when you run these numbers just as you can with with uh, delivering electrical power to the Moon, uh, the cheapest way to do it is to absolutely minimise the amount of infrastructure you need on the surface of Mars. And so in the case of the Moon, the best way to do it is to keep all the power generation stuff and transmission stuff on the Earth and just have uh, a receiver antenna on the surface of the moon that can absorb the power and turn it directly into electricity. It's even simpler than a solar array. And mm-hmm. and in the case of Mars, you can terraform without even touching the
1: planet. I don't remember all the details of, of that particular blog post now. Have you run sort of like ever overall numbers? Like, you know, if you wanted to make a, have a meaningful impact in terms of um, warming up Mars, like how much money are we talking about here? Um, sort of like, you know, hundreds of billions, trillions, also to kind of then make a judgment as to how this could actually be executed in the real world. Like, for example, is that something that... A, um, a nation by itself could do? Would it require several nations to work together? Um, or is it actually small enough that it could be a public-private partnership? You know, those kinds of questions.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the major obstacle to doing it would be it'd have to be a nation state, I think, in order to avoid people complaining too much. Uh, the blog post is called How to Terraform Mars for $10 billion in 10 years. And and to be clear, mm. the end state of this process is not the, the planet actually being terraformed, which is like the shiftiest thing that I wrote here. The end state is the planet is, is warm enough to have liquid water um, on, on its mm-hmm. surface. So it's it as opposed right now, it's like basically cold, dry and vacuum. Uh, And and with solar sails, you could get it to warm, wet and poisonous atmosphere. So Mm -hmm. in some ways, it would be uh, a little more hospitable than scuba diving, but quite a bit less hospitable than walking around on the surface of the earth. Unless you're inside, I don't know, some like volcano or something where you have to wear a gas mask. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically, I just kind of run the math on like how many mirrors you would need and and um, how long it would take you to build them. And uh, you can you can make fairly unrealistic estimate estimations here so the the key thing there is um the the idea is that if you heat mars enough particularly in in certain locations uh you can release enough co2 that's currently frozen on the surface of the planet to warm the planet up we know that this has happened historically on mars at least hundreds of times mm-hmm. um probably as a result of um asteroid impact uh causing the the, the atmosphere to thicken up and, and the planet to heat but what what we do for sure is that is that uh most of the time mars has been cold and dry uh, in the last you know 3 mm-hmm. or 4 billion years uh which means that the The climate there has like two stable equilibria, one being warm and wet and one being cold and dry. And the warm and wet equilibria eventually decays over probably the order of 10,000 or 100,000 years and and Mm -hmm. freezes out. And there's a a very, very clever uh, researcher who at least was at Harvard last time I checked called Robin Wordsworth, who's run a bunch of simulations on this stuff. And his Mm -hmm. uh, best guess, at least according to papers I read on this a while ago, was that because Mars has exceptionally high altitude um like say an exceptionally large area of its surface is at exceptionally high altitude it is quite likely that um if you had an active water cycle you would get uh a kind of glaciation like mass glaciation occurring uh, on tharsis which is an equatorial area so mm-hmm. until recently there were glaciers on mount kilimanjaro which is effectively uh, on the equator of the earth um which is mm-hmm. pretty amazing but and the earth itself actually went through several snowball phases uh in in the distant past uh where, where it also got very icy and, and mass glaciation and and as a result, all that snow reflected a lot of heat uh, from the sun and, and caused the planet to get colder and colder. But a similar sort of process probably occurs on Mars, where there's there's only ever a fairly limited quantity of water, um, and that water eventually all snows out on top of the mountains and forms giant glaciers up there, which then you know lock up the water for tens of thousands of years, and effectively freeze out freeze out the water cycle, and then. Um, and then the amount of moisture in the atmosphere, which is an important greenhouse gas, drops off. And then, in addition, you've got this entire high altitude area covered in glaciers, which are reflecting light back into space and reflecting heat back into space. And then the planet cools off. And uh, and then over time, either that the the high altitude glaciers get um, get buried by by dust, or they uh, sublimate and the uh, water either evaporates and escapes into space, or it um, or it's kind of what's called saltates, uh, where it, Mm-hmm. the water vapor molecules kind of bounce bounce away along the surface and eventually accumulate at the poles. it's, it's uncertain yeah. exactly how much water is available on Mars. But in any case, uh, kind of a downer as far as terraforming goes. Um that said, you know, if we're able to um to sit on the surface and pump out adequate quantities of greenhouse gases to keep the planet warm or launch enough solar sails to heat the planet up in the first place, then uh we can uh we can overcome
1: that. So that's um um, since we're running short on time, uh, let's uh, shift towards some softer, softer factors—sort um, of more societal stuff. I mean, have you thought about sort of, you know, when we want to convince people to go to Mars? Um, and establish human presence there. I mean, uh, besides the people that you have, who are just going to, you know, be very enthusiastic no matter what, sort of like, what do you think might be sort of the, the key attraction or sort of a, a killer app? Or how can we kind of, you know, make sure that a society evolves that is that is just more than, you know, the basis we have in Antarctica, for example?
0: That's actually an interesting question on two fronts. Um, I think Antarctica actually has a fascinating and insular culture of its own, um, as do, mm. you know, the submarine service, for example. hmm that's, that's actually pretty opaque to outsiders. And I, I, I certainly think that you would see similar things occurring on Mars. Um, in terms of, in terms of who goes, um, essentially you're looking for the overlap of people who want to go with the overlap of people who have the skills and uh, mindset necessary to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, it seems to me that this is not a difficult problem to solve. You know, NASA has never been underwhelmed for for applicants for its astronaut program. Yeah. And, and, and while it's possible that maybe only 0.1% of humanity would be cut out to, um, to, you know, move to Mars in the early days and, and, uh, and, and build stuff and, and know what they're doing and have the financial resources and, and privilege necessary to get there that's still you know many millions of people so yeah i think overall that's, that's not a major constraint um just in terms of recruiting um what, what could even so argue, it comes back to your that, yeah, it comes back sorry, to your point
1: from before right where you said that um that 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 does depend that depend arguably on the return capability right because of course the whole point with nasa is that even if you went with apollo to the moon you Presumably knew that that you had a way back, right? Whereas with yeah, maybe... I mean
0: the astronauts knew they had about a one in six chance of not being able to come back, right? So like pretty good. But then again, like the the odds, if you're a pilot, a fighter pilot in the Second World War, for example, your your odds of surviving were about you know one in uh, nine 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 in ten or something like that. So like if you if you fl- mm-hmm. flew ten sorties, it was starting to look pretty grim. And ultimately, one of the things that really harmed the Luftwaffe's ability to fight was that they killed off all the pilots who knew what they were doing because they never mm-hmm. never allowed them to retire. So yeah, I think I think it's probably. Yeah, it's nice to have for people to potentially be able to come back, but at the same time, like there essentially isn't a shortage of people right now who, who line up to perform to do things uh, recreationally that have, have very high consequences. You know I, I happen to know many people who enjoy rock climbing, for example, which is actually a sport that's pretty safe if you do it right, but if something goes wrong, mm-hmm. it's uh, pretty quick. And then obviously like the armed forces are full of people who have signed up to uh, you know essentially be put in harm's way by, their, by the state. You know we don't have to dwell too much on what's going on in ukraine right now but like i think everyone involved in that in that conflict knows what the you know what the stakes are so so you know uh, personally i i don't have a great degree of interest um it's again i'm privileged in this sense but i don't have a great great degree of interest in in, in fighting other humans but uh but i could certainly you know, you know there's always a trade-off to be made uh between like the risk of a particular endeavor and a potential reward or outcome and i've always seen myself as as someone who's who do personally you know happy to go and try different things like that and i've always been interested in uh, you know, approaching environments that are quite hostile and, and figuring out how to make them safe enough to, to deal with. Um, I don't know if my mm-hmm. calculus will, will change as I get older, but but certainly when I was younger, I, I used to climb erupting volcanoes and things. So it's a, you know, it's a fun, it's a fun exercise. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of uh, f- figure out what goes on. So yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any shortage of, of humans who are who are who would be willing to willing to do
1: that. Mm-hmm. So, but if you think about sort of humans who then, you know, really want to stay there for the long term and, and not come back, right? So if you want to create a real human um, society with everything that humans like to do and then of course it involves also things like arts and sports and whatnot and but let's not even go into that so one remaining questions I always have is that maybe the most quintessential activity that us humans engage in is creating and raising families Mm -hmm. and I don't know whether you have looked at this or thought about this but whenever I try looking it feels like we have not really done a whole lot of research on having kids in in non-1g conditions (laughs) yeah it's certainly true yeah, I, I don't think you could you could justifiably
0: accuse any of the space agencies of overinvesting in in uh, different different <laughs> gravity research. I don't worry about that too much. Um, I, I have a blog on this as well which is called like let's make space babies or something. I, actually on Earth it's, okay. it's kind of interesting uh, amongst my peer group at least. Um, and there's uh, probably more the case in, in Europe than in the United States, but but actually as a species we seem to be getting out of the habit of having families, which is which is kind of a worry. Um, in the sense that mm-hmm. I'd say for in the developed world, in most of the developed world for the last fifty years, we have continued to make new humans primarily by preventing humans from dying rather than by actually making new humans, which is obviously not a bad mm-hmm. thing, but at the same time, like we need to be asking ourselves serious questions about like who the hell is going to look after us when we're old because most people are not having enough children to replace themselves, and the ones who are are not having mm-hmm. enough to replace the ones who aren't. this is this is an area of, it, of kind of sociological interest. It is quite possible that on the on the Martian frontier, people would do something about that. Well, first of all, I'd say that like a self-sustaining civilization on Mars would almost certainly import people for a long time. If you look at that make-by question, it's almost certainly easier to import fully trained adult humans uh, from Earth than to make and raise humans on Mars. That said, yeah, human
1: uh, children, I have a couple of young children myself. Yeah. Okay, but that sorry, so that, yeah. cut That's you off. That, that that solves that solves the sort of um the, let's let's call it the workforce issue. It doesn't solve the, you know, um uh you know, human yeah. motivation uh, I want to have a family
0: type uh issue. Yeah, right? sure. Well, I mean, so not everyone can have children. Um, but and actually historically speaking, probably only forty percent of men had children at all. But um the I think I think some people wonder if if you know if it's if it's fair on children to to bring them into a strange world. My experience is that is that children are incredibly adaptable. You know, I sometimes mm-hmm. worry like, oh, how are my children are going to cope if we go on like some long road trip. And the reality is they actually love it. Um they 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 cope much better than us adults do. And and the other thing is like it's important to remember that like if you're a child, you you look around, you see adults, and you're looking for where your place in the society will be when you grow up. And in mature societies where, you know, in parts of Switzerland, for example, I'm sure the median age is well over 50, the, the, the few children that do exist look around and they say, this is a society of managed decline. This is a society where all the good spots are already taken, mm. all the wealth is taken, mm-hmm. they're not building anything anymore, there's, there's nothing for my generation to engineer or do, all those problems are solved, all the solvable problems are solved and the unsolved problems no one has any will to fix, which is actually pretty freaking depressing and i think if you if you mm-hmm. look into reasons for like the decline of of like the welfare and, and uh mental health in in teenagers today you would you wouldn't have to scratch the surface far far to find that essentially it's this question of like you know what what is there for our generation to do that we are allowed to do mm. uh you know we're mm. not allowed out of the side of our parents to 18 kind of bullshit uh in contrast to that you could say well you know a, a human raised on mars would have potentially like uh certain health consequences risk of exposure i think they're on the balance less risky than having our schools all next to freeways as they frequently are in Los Angeles in terms of Mm -hmm. health risk. But, Mm -hmm. but certainly like, you know, there's some potential consequences there in terms of radiation and and gravity, but you know, a child, child being raised in a, in a Mars city would, would understand responsibility. They would understand their role in the society. Uh, they would, they would be looking at a limitless, limitless frontier and a a horizon and, and, you know, a world that desperately needs them and has a place for them. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, essentially the only limit to what they can achieve is, is their own like, you know, ambition and that, that I think is a wonderful mm-hmm. thing. You know, I certainly felt that way growing up mm-hmm. in Australia, uh, credits to my parents and, and, and the culture that they raised me in. But I felt that, that, you know, like there was in the 1990s, at least there was still like a future worth building. Yeah. And I, I kind of, you know, I hope that we can, we can provide that for our children. I, I think that would not be a bad thing. Uh, certainly you, you can, you can look into studies of, of humans raised in, in various cultures, um, with, mm-hmm. with varying levels of, of, uh, you know, mm-hmm material deprivation i guess um children are raised in antarctica for example <laughs> like the the argentinians have bases in on the at- Antarctic peninsula where children are raised so yeah, you could always look into those um but in my experience at least uh kids are freaking resilient especially in the face of of um you know like kind of existential struggles uh that that they feel like they can actually help with uh so in some ways, I envy uh, the the children who would get raised on a, on a moon or Mars base, and and would get to like you know, essentially from from birth solve all the problems that that many of us have spent our entire mm-hmm. lives uh,
1: trying to imagine what it would be like to solve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I really I love those notion because it kind of you know it's um, it's also something we've seen in Earth's history, right? I mean, you mentioned you're being from Australia, right? But Australia, like you know uh, the U.S., right, where where people kind of uh, left hard circumstances to sometimes arguably find even harder circumstances at least at the beginning but made things work and created really really thriving cultures and societies right where you know one could make the argument i mean maybe that is likely if we develop a society on mars maybe that is the likely thing to happen because you would have some probably self-selection to start with in terms of the people who are actually willing to go there and and then Mm. you have the same effect and like as these societies develop right which is i always sort of half-jokingly say this is why um I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're probably watching The Expanse as well, right? The TV series. Mm. In The Expanse, Mars, the, the, the Mars Republic is portrayed as a... I think it's fair to say, far advanced society compared to Earth technologically and otherwise. And it kind of always made intuitive intuitive sense to me that 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 would happen.
0: Yeah, I I certainly think that like the frontier and technical challenges would would spur substantial innovation. Uh, It's not to say that you couldn't do it on Earth if you did it the right way as well. I would Mm. state though, that like if I look into my own ancestry in Australia, it took, we we burned three generations, like my family burned three generations before they were able to be uh, prosperous. Um, which is, mm. I don't know. It's kind of daunting uh, to think about the fact that you know that the first generation that came out, they 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 worked hard. They died in pain, alone, mental illness, addiction, suffering. Many of their children died. The ones that survived, like the one or two that survived uh, themselves, had extremely difficult lives. Although they weren't necessarily hungry for extended periods of time, and for them, for them at least, you know, most of their children survived to adulthood. So like that's a definite win. And then and then those children, uh, they grew up. They 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 had um, extremely. Hard physical labor-oriented or lives, but they were able to provide for their families, and then their children mm-hmm. were able to get educated and and fly in planes and things. So and that's that's my grandparents. So like, uh, ideally, we would be able to uh, avoid that. And actually, uh, I think just in general, actually, the, the analogy like this sort of analogizing breaks down uh, when we think about Mars because there isn't really a a, a mode or a, or a case there where you could have a situation where we're like the only way to survive would be hard physical labor, like. if mm. Essentially, in a, in a situation that 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 is that uh, hostile, you're either winning like easily or you're dead. Uh, if that makes any sense, mm. like you're you're either, you're yeah, either doing extremely enough. well or you're dead. Um, so, um, so I, I don't I don't I don't think that that analogy extends too far. But I, I certainly think that um, that you know uh, ultimately children will be, li- will be born and raised in 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 situations that we would see as quite foreign. Uh, today and actually you know if you talk to my grandparents or whatever about about the way they were raised and and the way that my children are raised and so on it's almost completely different as well um you know just just in a few mm-hmm. short generations we've 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 completely changed our mm-hmm. outlook on on how humans approach uh freedom but also you know exposure to physical violence um i was just reading a memoir the mm-hmm. other day of a, of a man who grew up in in britain in the 1920s and was sent to boarding school and just like routinely beaten by all the masters mm-hmm. and the nurse all uh, the senior boys and so on and it's just like that was just something that people took for granted and nowadays you know i think in 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 most uh western cultures at least it's it's kind of beating children is is not seen as uh, socially acceptable let alone recommended let alone uh normal mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Uh, definitely yes advances occurring, right.
1: <laughs> yes exactly yes. um <laughs> so so i mentioned the expanse, and so we touched upon basically um sci-fi which is traditionally the always the last question on on these podcast episodes so typically, I ask people for their favorite sci-fi works, and I will do that in a second with you as well. But since we've been talking about Mars so far, um, let me ask you first this question on sci-fi. I assume you you know all of the well, you definitely know the Mars trilogy, Kim Stanley Robinson, because your latest, I think, your latest uh, blog post is about that. Um, we hmm. just talked about the Expanse, and then let me throw in as a third option, and I hope you've seen it as well, the original Total Recall movie with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So all three of those basically not actually. depict. Um, but yeah, <laughs> okay. So let me ask you the other way around. I, I, mean, the I newer was going to ask basically, oh, oh, that's terrible. No, the new one is the, the terrible. The original is really yeah. good. Okay. I was going to ask you, like, all three of those basically depict, um, you know, um, not even settlements, actually, like, Mars societies, um, colonies, to use a controversial term in some way. Um, which, well, let me ask you this way then, like, which of, which of the sci-fi depictions of Mars do you like the most and why? Well, I
0: think it's important to remember that that the authors have, uh, created a, a literary backdrop for exploring ideas that, you know, in some cases, uh, they, they make a real effort to make it scientifically accurate. So like, uh, Andy Weir's book, The Martian, for example. Um, and I, I really enjoy mm-hmm. that because I, I read it. And I can I can see the effort that went into making this something that could actually occur. You know, in mm-hmm. order to have a story, obviously aspects of it are somewhat contrived. And then you know you can look at the the skill of of a really deeply talented writer like Kim Stanley Robinson, who is by his own admission not technical, um, but is able to kind of elide the technical difficulty and and just kind of deal with it, uh, allow, allow the reader to kind of fill in the detail to the extent of their knowledge. Um, in a, in, and actually that's like the key. Like no one really wants to pick up a science fiction book that's a manual for how something might occur, like speculative stuff. They just want the story to, you know, the story is ultimately about how people deal with, you know, usually one or two changes in, in terms of their environment, you know, like this world, but what if X was true? So I really appreciate that. I would I would desperately, dearly love to read a a, a book set on Mars by Neil Stevenson. Um, I think Neil Stevenson's also an absolutely brilliant writer mm-hmm. um, and, and actually in many ways extremely technical as well. Um, certainly accomplished in terms of physics and 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 coding and calculation, um, which which I think leaps off his the pages of his books. But you know we we have to wait for that one. Uh, but if you're mm-hmm. listening, Neil, thank you, please. Um, and then uh, I read I read a whole bunch of the like more vintage ones, like uh, you know the um, Princess of Mars ones and and the Burroughs mm-hmm. Burroughs books and so on. And they obviously predate uh, any of the uh, the robotic missions. So they're they're basically space operas in disguise, and and in some ways quite weird and questionable, yep. but you know stories nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in terms of in terms of film, I actually haven't seen much of *The Expanse* or, um, or of um, *For All Mankind* or, or obviously, Termini- uh, sorry, um, uh, *Total Recall*. I'm am a bad person, but um, I absolutely love Ridley Scott's adaptation of *The Martian*. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. absolutely extraordinary. Um, uh, you know, like in terms of again, like technical accuracy, there there's goofs all over the place. Uh, like, so for example, like the the planet is rotating in the wrong direction in the opening shot. Um, but. Uh, but you can kind of look past that and and just appreciate mm-hmm. it for for what it is. It's um it's uh, what, mm-hmm. just extraordinary film.
1: I mean, it's it's funny. I mean, because you're thinking about some of these things so much that in, in in some way you'd be like the perfect hard science fiction writer. Have you ever been tempted by writing fiction?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've got a few. I mean, essentially all the short stories I've written uh, as an adult I've published on my blog, so you can dig through and find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a I did a science I did a science fiction writing course in in 2016 where I wrote a couple of different books oh sorry wrote, wrote a couple of short stories um it, it's fun it's fun to write but you know at a certain point in life you realize where your strengths lie mm-hmm. uh, i've certainly greatly enjoyed the privilege of, of helping some friends uh with with the composition of their novels so for example like they give me a call and say you know hi i need this person to jump off the moon how much delta v do they need or something and i can give them a number and they can put it in and then you know the forestalls you know four thousand angry nerds writing them letters and emails over the next 10 years um that that's actually it's a real privilege to be kind of part of that process um but but anyway like i, I don't know i've got a few ideas lurking. i've got a, a concept yeah. uh, lurking in the back of my mind for um for a book about immortality actually but um it's i'm looking forward uh, to that one yeah i don't know like and uh, then this- someone someone asked me like what how many tabs do you have open on your computer or like what are your tabs and i was like oh god <laughs> <laughs> like maybe a thousand something like almost all of them represent off writing projects so it's um it's a bit dismal.
1: I think I think I currently have about three hundred open, which is the main reason I need like computer technology to advance. But but jokes aside, um, yeah. speaking of of writing, so um, with, with within your blog, um, any sort of um, future articles you want to tease that are in your mind?
0: Okay, well, so I have a side by side review Kim Stanley Robinson and Neil Stephenson's climate books, uh, Termination Shock and mm-hmm. um, Ministry of the Future. So I read both his mm-hmm. books, um, and um, I, I'm actually acknowledged in Ministry of the Future. So spoiler alert, but Um, the, it's fascinating to me because, because I've, I've met Neil and and Stan once or twice and, and I know that they don't routinely read, read each other's work. Um, and, and actually they see themselves as like from, from different literary traditions. Um, so like Neil's more from like the cyberpunk tradition and Stan is more from like the, Mm um, I don't know, like PK Dick, like, um, kind of literary sci-fi tradition, but, but it's quite clear if you read the the various books that published over the last 20 years that they, they often draw from the same sources. Um, and actually, there's, there's kind of incredible convergence in these two two novels about the climate stuff. Even mm. though they're completely different stories set in different worlds, multiple plot beats and characters and formations and so on are quite similar, like almost embarrassingly so. And so um, mm. I, I'm really looking forward to writing that. I don't know. I'll have to look at my... Uh, my list of potential future blogs
1: it's like that's that's um, that's a good one and uh, I must say I've, I've read the ministry of the future which by the way I recommend to everyone I think it's uh it's a very interesting book I haven't read yeah. Neil's this book so okay I, I read it as well <laughs> I wrote the Dsal blog recently uh starship layout efficiency
0: trap I kind of have some ideas here that they're not they're not fully formed they're basically like one liners like half a tweet length um descriptions and at some point like the missing piece will fall into place and then and then I'll sit yeah. down and, and bang out five thousand words and call it done but yeah, anyway. yeah. If, if people have suggested, we're very much but, looking you know, forward also, to that. if yeah, people absolutely. know that I should call my blog. Same. It's needed a name for like ten years, so.
1: <laughs> I think people are used to Casey Casey Hammer's blog now, but but Casey, um, we're really looking forward to to you continuing to do this. I think a lot of people love your blog posts and and just you know find them very educational and and informative. And well, so, thank I'm you right. very much for doing this. Thank yeah. you very much for 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 being on this podcast, and you know, hopefully, we can do this again sometime in like a year or two.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, and, and sorry to be a little bit. Uh, inarticulate this morning it's it's obviously i didn't sleep that well last night but um uh it's been fun and no um yeah thanks for having me
1: and that's the wrap for another nominal episode of the space business podcast once more if you enjoyed this please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platforms such as apple or spotify you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space you can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an interesting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.